Well, we continue in our series in Matthew's Gospel and have come now to the ninth chapter, beginning at verse 18, Matthew 9, 18 through 26. Let me remind you that in the Sermon on the Mount, there was an emphasis upon Jesus' authoritative teaching, and we have seen a series of miracles, each of which gives to us a different angle on who Jesus is, and in which also is emphasized his authority over all things. Now we come to this great dual miracle narrative in chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, but let's briefly pray together. Our Father and our God, we know that during this week there have been distractions, sins, failings, joys, there have been revivings. Our hearts are in desperate need of you, and we thank you for giving to us the Lord's Day and ordaining the proclamation of your word and the worship of your name. But Father, here is this preacher standing before these sinners, and the preacher himself is the greatest of the sinners here. How indeed can I open your word and expect that you will use me? And yet, Heavenly Father, the great, the great wonder of it all is, uh, it's, it's the gospel that saves. It's the message of this book that we all need. And we pray that we will see Jesus on this page and that the Holy Spirit will open our heart to the saving, saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we know that you have ordained the preaching of the word. We get confused and jumbled up inside. We forget the grace of God during the week. And we once again need to hear from your word that you are a gracious and saving God. Hear our prayer, O Lord, and meet us here through the power of the same spirit that inspired this word, that he may now illumine its page to our understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. This is the word of God. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, He said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. A synagogue official came while Jesus was discoursing. He knelt at Jesus' feet and implored him to help his daughter. Mark tells us that he came while his daughter was dying and that along the way he was informed of her death. Matthew shortens the whole narrative, taking that report into account from the beginning of his narration of what happened. So already hearing of her death, this grieving father believes that Jesus can bring his daughter back to life. 
As with other accounts in Matthew, this one leaves out detail that we often find in Mark's gospel. Matthew uses 48 words to report this narrative. Mark uses 154 words to report this narrative. Matthew is concerned to emphasize not the details of the events, but the authority of Jesus as seen in his miracles. In other words, Matthew eliminates details to make a point. Look at Jesus, he is saying to us. See what he is doing. This is what the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would do when he came. See his authority. Look at his sovereign power. What hope must have filled this father's heart when Jesus went with him and continued to go even after the report of her death? What faith is found in this father's heart who believes that Jesus can lay his hands on her and raise his dear daughter to life? But as Jesus journeys to this man's home to raise up this man's daughter, we also read of a woman who had suffered from debilitating illness for 12 years. Now let's look at that woman. So our first point is 12 years of tragic suffering. Now remember as we look at this woman that we are looking at this woman in order to see Jesus, to see the authority of Jesus, to have another view of who Jesus is. And so we begin by looking at this woman and her awful suffering. She suffered long. That's the first thing you notice about her suffering. She had suffered long, 12 years, with all of the debilitating effects that come from such an illness, physical weakness, discouragement, depression, fear, constant application to doctors to be healed, and probably even a longing for death. One of my sisters in Christ, in a certain setting recently, made the statement to me and others, I'm sick of sickness and death. And you know, she's right. We talked about how right that perspective is for the believer in Jesus. It would not be right to allow that to lead us to despair. It would not be right for that fact to lead us to cynicism. But it's right for us to look at the results of the fall and to long for the return of Jesus Christ and for the new heavens and the new earth and for the time in which every tear will be wiped from our eye. It's right to grieve, but not as those who have no hope. It's right for us Christians to look at the sickness and sorrow of those around us and for us to say, I long for a better world. I long for that new heaven, for that new earth. I'm sick of sickness and death. And undoubtedly, this woman who had been who had been suffering for these 12 long years, was sick of her circumstances and sick of her sickness. She suffered long, but also we know that she suffered socially. If her bleeding was from the womb, which is likely, she would have been unclean for all of the years of her suffering. Can you imagine that? Leviticus 15, 25 and following tells of those circumstances in which a woman was to be considered unclean. And if indeed that is the situation here, this woman was unclean. That is to say, ceremonially considered unclean. Later on, an entire tractate will be written on this theme in the Mishnah. This woman remained ceremonially unclean so long as the bleeding lasted. She would have been shunned by society. She would have been shunned by her fellow Jews. She would have been Uh, She would have desperately sought a cure 
not only because of the frailty of her body, but also because she has no fellowship with her fellow Jews. She really shouldn't have been in the crowd. She shouldn't have contemplating, contemplated touching Jesus' garments, according to Jewish law. But there she is. And she would suffer not only socially, but she would have suffered profoundly spiritually. Because she would not have been allowed into the synagogue. She would not have heard the reading of God's word. She would have had no fellowship with fellow believers. She would have suffered spiritually. Now you know as well as I do that sickness is oftentimes a prelude to grace. That the Lord uses sickness in the lives of especially his people in order to open their hearts to his greatness, to show them something of the wonder of his grace. And often even in an unbeliever's life, will use sickness in order to draw a person to himself. And so it is here. Her sickness is a prelude to grace and to a revelation of who Jesus is. Will you note also, however, having seen her suffering, which was great, will you note also her confident faith? Faith that she could be healed by a simple touch of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was not at this point seeking a relationship with Jesus. Her faith, though real, was probably somewhat quasi-magical. If I can just touch the Lord Jesus, I know he's special. I know there's something about him. I know that he heals others. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch his clothing. It reminds you of those who in the book of Acts thought that if they would simply fall under the shadow of the apostles, that they would be healed of their sickness. But she believed if she could but come into contact with Jesus, Jesus even unobtrusively, that she would be healed. That's great faith, or at least it's true faith. Faith in Jesus, her faith in the Lord Jesus was also faith while he was on another errand. She had no reason to think that he had come for her, that he had any knowledge of her. She did not have any reason to think that she would actually have a personal encounter with Jesus, but this was by divine appointment nonetheless, not by accident, not by chance. And she had faith in Jesus, even while his back was turned, that she would be healed from her illness. She comes up from behind him. When the healing takes place, Jesus turns around and addresses her. She didn't know much, but she knew that Jesus was something wonderful. She sought mere contact with Jesus, even from behind, just to touch his garments. She certainly did not expect a face-to-face encounter, but the Lord will give her that too. Would you next notice with me her comfort? Jesus' tender words. Read again verse 22. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Notice the comfort in Jesus' tender words. Take heart, daughter, what kindness, what mercy drips from his lips. Your faith has made you well. Now, some actually find it remarkable that Jesus does not rebuke her approach or, uh, or that he finds true faith here at all. After all, as we have said, her approach is more akin to magic than it is faith. But there is genuine faith here, and her faith healed her. Not faith in the abstract, but faith in Christ. Christ, the object of her faith, healed her of her sickness and her disease. And as we notice her comfort in Jesus' tender words, also notice the ultimate comfort that Jesus made her well. In verse 22, he gives to her a complete bill of health. Instantly, the woman was made well. 
Remember, he has just called himself the physician of souls in the passage that we saw last week. The physician that came in order that he might remove the guilt of sinners. And now we see him, the physician of this woman's body. Ultimately, Matthew would remind you and remind me that when your trust is in this same Jesus who healed this woman, who was the great physician to this woman, that your guilt is removed just as surely as was this woman's illness. Now, the story is simple. As I've said to you, Matthew doesn't include many of the details that we would find in Mark's gospel. But let's take a few moments as we think about this woman to contemplate her faith and ours in Jesus. And let me say four things about her faith and yours and mine. The first thing about true faith is that true faith recognizes that Jesus is the one true physician. Mark tells us how many trips to the doctor she had taken over the years and had found them all to be unprofitable. We could assume that in any case. If you had had an illness like this for 12 years, you would have done everything in your power to be freed from it, would you not? Charles Spurgeon says something about the false doctors to which we often go. And it's quaint, but I think very effective. Listen to what this man of God said. I will tell you the names of a few spiritual doctors to whom I beseech you not to go. For if you do, you will suffer a great deal from them, but get no good. There is one whose name is Dr. Self-Confidence, who is in partnership with a relative called Dr. Self-Righteousness. Dr. Legality and his son, Mr. Civility, are another popular pair of cheats. You will find them at home whenever you call, and they will give you bitter doses or silver-coated pills as they see fit, but never a whit the better will you be. There is a doctor about just now who is educated by the Jesuits and practices the homeopathic system. Wafers and wine and water are his specific. To this school belong Mr. Surgeon Ceremonies and Dr. Sacraments. None of these can heal a sick soul. Have nothing to do with them, but apply to the beloved physician, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us went round to most of these pretenders and gave them a long trial. And though we were disappointed in them all, yet we still were enabled to believe in Jesus Christ. Dear friend, do the same. Though you have been disappointed everywhere else, yet go and knock at Christ's door, and that faith of yours which leaps over discouragement will make you whole. What a wonderful statement that Spurgeon has made. Jesus is the one true physician. But true faith also, as we think of her faith and ours, true faith also understands that Jesus does not despise small faith. Or maybe I should say he does not despise inaccurate faith. We don't wish to stay there with small faith, and we certainly don't wish to stay there with inaccurate faith. But few of us come to Christ at the start with great knowledge, do we? I do not agree with those people who think that a person must believe everything at once or understand everything at once. Coming to Christ is usually gradual. This woman's faith at this point is just in Jesus' ability to heal. That's really all she knows, that he's a healer of the sick. 
She doesn't yet have a full knowledge of who Jesus is. She can't say the Nicene Creed. She doesn't know about the deity of Christ. She doesn't understand the incarnation. She knows nothing yet about the cross or the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. All of those things are essential, but she doesn't start there. She doesn't know those things at this point. She comes and she acts on what she knows. Faith is usually a matter of small but real beginnings that grow over time. And my counsel to you is not to dwell on your faith at all but to keep your focus upon the object of your faith, who is Jesus Christ, and then you will find small faith become great, and you will find inaccurate faith becoming more accurate. You know, before, before coming to Christ is like being on the outside of a, of, a, of a great church building with stained glass windows. You look through those windows from the outside, and everything seems to be so opaque and so difficult to, to read. You really can't tell often what what is pictured in the windows. But true faith brings you on the inside. And from the inside, as the light increases, you begin to understand the picture. It increases in brilliance, and the picture becomes more clear and lustrous. That's what true faith does. It grows with the increase of light that shines. Now, a third thing about her faith and ours that I think we also need to remember is that Jesus points us to the strength of faith's object rather than to the strength of faith itself. Now, ever remember this. It is not the strength of your faith, but the strength of the object of your faith that matters. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. How inclined we are to forget that. And so let me remind you once again. Do you know Jude 24 and 25? Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. The point of Jude is it is he who keeps us from falling. It is he who brings us into the presence of his his glorious majesty with exceeding joy. It is not my faith ultimately that saves. It is the object of my faith ultimately that saves. He is the one who saves. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who grants us persevering grace. He is the one who brings us faultless to the throne, even all the way to the end. So remember that when you say, my faith is so weak. Yes, your faith is weak, but the object of your faith is infinitely strong, omnipotent. Keep your gaze on the object of your faith. But then there's a fourth thing about her faith and ours that we need to keep in mind, and it is this, that faith in Jesus, it is Jesus in whom we put our faith, that removes our defilement. That's the result of true faith in Christ. Now let's remember, this woman was ceremonially defiled as long as she had this issue of blood. The ceremonial defilement was Old Testament prescription pointing to the defilement of sin. Jesus removed her defilement. And when you have faith in Christ Jesus, the blood of Jesus removes the defilement of your guilt. Now let's dwell on this for a few moments. Have you forgotten this? I'm sure someone here has. I'm sure there are genuine Christians here this morning that are not coming boldly into God's presence because you don't fully get that your guilt is removed, that your defilement has been cleansed. All you can see is your past sin. All all that you can see is perhaps your failure even this week. 
You fail to, to understand that your defilement has been completely removed because all you see are your failings. You are a sinner, yes, but believer, you are a justified sinner. You are a pardoned sinner. You are cleansed by the blood of atonement. And so don't draw comfort from your duties. Don't draw comfort from your obedience, even, as if you find peace there. Some of you think deep down that you still lack something, but no, the work of Christ is done and it is all sufficient. Now, I came across this some time ago in the Puritan Owen Stockton, and I thought it was so remarkable that I would bring it to you. Listen to what Owen Stockton had to say. I find, said Owen Stockton, that though in my judgment and profession I acknowledge Christ to be my righteousness and peace, yet I have secretly gone about to establish my own righteousness and have derived my comfort and peace from my own acting. For when I have been disquieted by the actings of sin, not God speaking peace through the blood of Christ, but the intermission of temptation and the cessation of those sins have restored me to my former peace. When I have been troubled at the evil frame of my heart, not the righteousness of Christ, but my feelings of a better temper hath been my consolation. I prayed against and resolved against sin, striven with sin, and avoided occasions of sin, all which a natural man may do, a lost man may do. But how to fetch power from the death of Christ and to believe in God for the subduing of sin and how to do it by the Spirit have been mysteries to me. Now that's a profound, profound confession on the part of this godly man. Do you know what he's saying? Do you understand? How can I fetch power from the death of Christ in my daily living? How can I have a quiet and comforted heart even though I remain a sinner? How can I do this? And the answer is by seeing the absolute perfection of the work of Christ, by seeing that the work of Christ alone made manifest by the Holy Spirit is sufficient to give joy unspeakable without the performance of some duty. The answer is by the soul driven from every refuge but Christ, even the refuge of my own performances. Now, I'm not saying, you know that I'm not saying that you should be careless about sin in your life. I want to be a holy man and I want a holy congregation. I think we should be greatly concerned with being faithful and being obedient. My point is this. No matter how faithful you are, no matter how obedient you become, no matter whole, how holy you might by the grace of God become in your life, that cannot be the ground of your acceptance with God, and it can never, never be the basis of your peace. Your defilement is not removed by your obedience. Your defilement is not removed by your faithfulness. Your defilement is removed. Your guilt is cleansed. Your sin is taken away only by Jesus Christ who died on a cross and rose from the dead. Find your peace in Him. Find the removal of your defilement in Christ. Find your sufficiency in Jesus. But never look to your own performances. Of course, Christians must not be content with selfish sin. But peace of conscience is not found in obedience, but in the one 
who removes defilements. And that's what faith begins to understand and to grasp. And so what do you lack? My friend, believer in Jesus, God is pleased with you in His Son. His very righteousness is imputed to you, and you have received that righteousness by faith. Yes, there is growth in grace, but your peace is not found even in your growth in grace, only in the cross of Christ. Otherwise, you will always live in doubt. You will say, I haven't grown enough. I haven't been faithful enough. I haven't worked enough. I haven't done enough. And you fall back into a works righteousness system. Christian, you need to see yourself as a sinner, but you need to see yourself as a blood-washed sinner. Your guilt and defilement removed in Jesus. That's what the miracle tells us. Jesus removed her ceremonial defilement. Jesus removes our real defilement. Now, this arresting combination of two narratives is bound together by the human tragedy of this woman who suffered this debilitating illness for 12 years, but also by, second thing in the text, second thing, a life cut short. This daughter of the synagogue ruler is dead on Jesus' arrival. Look at verses 23 and 24. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So the flute players are there. That doesn't mean they're celebrating. It means they're mourning. These were professional mourners that would have been called by the family members already to mourn the death of this young girl. And the father believed, and Jesus came. Believing does not establish Christ's authority. Rather, you believe on the authority of Christ, and it is his authority that is made plain. Now, Jesus sees what others cannot. Jesus says, she's asleep, she's not dead. Now, is he denying her death? What's he saying here? Sleep is often a euphemism for, uh, for death in the scriptures. But someone has rightly pointed out that if Jesus is doing that, if he's merely using a euphemism here, then his statement would mean, the girl is not dead, but dead. What is he doing? What, what is he saying? Uh, there is here, for Matthew's readers who are believers, for us, a reminder that death is not the final word, but sleep from which Christ will wake the body on the last day. There is here a reminder that Jesus is life himself, the one who will raise the dead on the last day. So what is Jesus doing here? Carson puts it quite beautifully. In this instance, the real death of the girl was not as final as the mourners thought. In his presence, in the presence of Jesus, in his presence before his authority, death itself must flee. Death is reduced to not much more than sleep. Implicitly, there may also have been a criticism of the Sadducean view that said there was no resurrection. In any case, Jesus' statement can be understood only if we see that he is less interested in making a medical diagnosis than in making a Christological claim, a claim about himself as the Christ. 
When Jesus confronts our last great enemy, death itself, death is the loser. It is stripped of its power and reduced to sleep. That's what Jesus is saying. I come into the presence of this dead girl, but I'm life. I am life himself. Death is the loser. It is reduced to little more than sleep. And so Jesus raises the dead. The skeptics laughed at him. This is also a messianic credential, is it not? He's rejected by men. They laugh at Jesus, the incarnate Lord. Jesus is moving toward the cross in which there will be more and more opposition as we read Matthew's gospel. I ask you the question, can we as Jesus' disciples expect to be treated differently than our master? We who believe in Jesus are treated as narrow and following him as ignorant and ridiculous. Increasingly, as our culture rebels, Christians in our country will be slandered. We are told to expect this. Will you trust the Lord, who was rejected by men, when men also reject you for your stance for Jesus? And so they laugh at Jesus, and he puts the crowd outside, and Jesus did not perform miracles to convince skeptics. They are signs of who he is to be received by faith. And Jesus kept the details as private as possible, and in the miracle the light of his deity is shining through. But only after the resurrection will there be complete understanding for Matthew and, of course, now for us. The text says so simply, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. (laughs) Oh, my friends, people of God, I hope that there is a genuine excitement that week after week after week as we read Matthew's gospel and we see miracle after miracle or his teaching or his parables, I hope that there is a genuine excitement that once again you have another angle on who Jesus is, that you have another view of his greatness that you can marvel once again at, at, in this case, the one who removes defilement and also the one who raises the dead. I hope that, that it never becomes for you simply rote that you can read a gospel such as Matthew's gospel and no longer have a sense of wonder. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Do you stand amazed in the presence of this one who came and through his simple touch heals, and through his simple word and touch, raises a dead young girl to life. Who is this? This is marvelous, my friends. I believe in preaching Christ, 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 Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified, and we preach not ourselves. How wonderful every week to see a new angle on Jesus. You know, there are some people who would prefer other things. Let me assure you, somebody here maybe. What they really want when they come and they hear is not an exposition of a text. Tell me something new, Pastor. Give me a series of stories. Hey, I'll give you a story now. Adoniram Judson. Do you know who Adoniram Judson was? Missionary to Burma, 19th century. Adoniram Judson came back after 30 years of service there in Burma. 
And he had a great gathering, and people were, were excited to hear Adoniram Judson because they wanted to hear all of his esoteric stories about these wonders that had been performed in Burma and all the hardships and all the, all the unusual oriental things in, into which he had, had entered and the contacts that he had had, and they were anticipating these great stories. And Adoniram Judson stood up, and do you know what he did? He preached Jesus. He preached Jesus. He didn't have a thing to say about Burma. And the people went away, and the organizer of the event, event said they were disappointed. He said, disappointed? Why were they disappointed? They wanted to hear your stories. They wanted to hear what happened in Burma. He said, I only have one story, and that's Jesus. What a good thing that they're, they're able to go away and say, after 30 years, Adoniram Judson in Burma comes back, and he still has the same and the only story, and that story is Jesus. There's my story for you this morning. What you need, what I need, you need the gospel. You need to get into this book. You need to read these passages. You need to see Jesus as the Redeemer and Savior of sinners. My, what a wonderful, wonderful thing it is to see Jesus. Now there's one final thing I want to do with you. I want to remind you once again of what Jesus is doing in the performance of his miracles. So that's the third thing in the text, or at least upon the basis of the text, the meaning of Jesus' miracles. Let me say four things to you. What are the meanings of Jesus' miracles? Let me remind you first that the miracles are signs of the kingdom. They show that the saving reign of the Lord Jesus has begun among his people. They say to us that Jesus is the cosmic ruler, the one who came to reverse the effects of the fall and to restore all things and us. That Jesus is the creator who came to recreate, to renew, and to restore. That's what his miracles say. The miracles also say, secondly, in particular they show that Jesus came to remove uncleanness. Not every miracle, but many of them. We have seen some of them already. We have seen him confront unclean spirits. And here the uncleanness of the issue of blood that had flowed for 12 years from this woman. And finally, we see him even, even removing the uncleanness of a corpse. Ultimately, Jesus removes real uncleanness by going to his cross in the place of unclean sinners like you and like me. And he took our sin and our guilt and our death upon himself. The miracles point to that. Thirdly, the miracles of Jesus point to the resurrection from the dead. This was a resuscitation of a dead girl to earthly life, but it points ahead to the end of Matthew, to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If death were the end, we would remain helplessly in the grip of the evil one. But death is not the end. His miracles teach us that they are not the end. They are a display of resurrection power before the resurrection of Jesus takes place. Easter has now burst upon us, and the miracles of Jesus point to his and our resurrection of the dead. Let me paraphrase an old divine that I read once. When death sucked the life out of Jesus, it drank life, and life killed death. Then he rose from the grave. Amen. And then, fourthly, the miracles of Jesus indicate who Jesus is. That's what you need to see in this passage, in all of these passages. He heals the leper. 
He removes sickness. The wind and the waves obey Him. The demons obey Him. And He even, even raises the dead to life. These miracles were intended to raise the question, Who is this? What kind of man is this that has such authority? These are the questions that we should raise as we read the miracles of Matthew's gospel. What do you see? Who do you see? Do you see the Son of God in whom you put your faith for salvation from your sin? Will you look ahead in Matthew and see Jesus' mission fulfilled on the cross? Will you see that, that pointed to through this great miracle of the removal of defilement? Will you believe in him? Will you trust in him alone for your salvation? Will you entrust your soul to him who carried every sin of his people to judgment on the cross? Do you know the words of Toplady? Oh, we've got to sing these. These, these old words, we've got to get them to music. Listen to these old words of Toplady. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou my discharge hast procured and fully in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty, trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. O people of God, that's the Jesus we see in these miracles in Matthew's gospel chapter 9. That's the Jesus who did these things. That's the Jesus who does these things, who applies his atonement to every believing heart. If you're a lost sinner in the midst of the people of God today, Come to him, trust him, believe in him, trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus, Jesus, Jesus died in order to remove the defilement of sinners' sins like you and like me. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.